I believe in Christ, he is my king. With all my heart to him I'll sing. I'll raise my voice in praise and joy, in grand amens my tongue employ. Scriptures reveal the divine desires of the Lord in our behalf. Each of us should have a burning desire to search the scriptures diligently and daily to seek the will of the Lord in our life. Brothers and sisters, on very thin pages, thick with meaning, are some almost hidden scriptures. Hence, we are urged to search, feast, and ponder. If you are lonely, please know you can find comfort. If you are discouraged, please know you can find hope. If you are poor in spirit, please know you can be strengthened. If you feel you are broken, please know you can be mended. Welcome back to Go and Do. This week we have Alma, chapter 53 through 63. We hope you enjoy it. The cool thing about these chapters is we get some of the best stories from the war chapters. We get the the army of Helaman, the stripling warriors. <laughs> Helaman's little army, it says in the, in the manual, of 2,000 young Nephites. And it's interesting because these are the, the children of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, right? Who made a commitment not to take up arms. And there's this moment in the chapters where they start to, it kind of mentions how they've been protected under the Nephites and they've been, they've lived in their land and they've benefited from their protection for a long time. And they started to feel like the burden was too great because there was so much happening and they felt a responsibility to help. And they were at the point of taking up their weapons again. And I think it was Helaman that stepped in and was like, no, 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 no. You guys made a commitment. You made a, a promise. We're not going to allow you to go back on that promise. And then there's like this, you know, I don't know, covenant loophole or something <laughs> where it's like, but our sons never made that promise. And he's like, okay, I'll take them, you know. <laughs> and he takes them and, I mean, gosh, over the course of the next chapters, they they fight several times. He doesn't. I think the best part about it is he doesn't treat them like little boys. I don't know how old we're talking. It could be from teenagers to maybe in their 20s or something like that. But the point is that he never said, oh, this, let's leave this to the grown men or let's leave this to the the more experienced fighters. He was like, we can do it. We're going to go and we're going to fight this. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because in... Um chapter 53 you know verse 15 is where Helaman says you know hey you better not do this uh don't break your promise 16 it talks about then 17 it says and they entered and these are talking about the the 2000 or the or the sons of the and they entered into a covenant to fight for the liberty of the nephites yea to protect the land Unto the laying down of their lives, even they covenant that they never would give up their liberty, that they would fight in all cases to protect the Nephites and themselves from bondage. So they also made a covenant. 
and their covenant was, we are with you, we're going to help you. And then I thought it was really interesting in 18 and 19 real fast, it says, now behold, there were 2,000 of these young men who entered into this covenant and took their weapons of war to defend their country. And now behold, as they never had hitherto been a disadvantage to the Nephites, they now became and they became now at this period of time also a great support. And they took their weapons of war. I thought that was interesting that it would mention they they weren't a disadvantage or the, the anti-Nephite Lehites, they were not as per, like they were probably helping with supplies, they were probably helping build fortifications. They, you know, it was just the actual fighting. And I like that Helaman or 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 Mormon, whoever's writing this part, kind of points out that they weren't a disadvantage. They weren't they didn't do this out of guilt. Well, not guilt, but um, almost like social pressure. Like you guys are a bunch of moochers. Why don't you come prove yourselves? Because sometimes we we tend to do that nowadays. You know, if you're not with my cause, then you must be against it. And I don't know. I, I just really like how not just that they came and fought, but the 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 conversation here that leads them to join and that Helaman, like they, they need help, but Helaman can recognize the ends don't justify the means here. We can't just take your parents and have them break their promises. It's better for us that they keep their promise. And then the young man, it's better that you make these covenants and, and that uh, you are willing to fight for freedom. And they didn't know that they were going to be magically protected because they, they covenant that they would even lay down their lives. Yeah, I think kind of an insight into that, though, is that in verse 20, it says they were exceedingly valiant for courage and also for strength and activity. This was not all. They were men who were true at all times in whatsoever thing they were entrusted. These, these young men had shown a track record of being trustworthy, of being reliable. It wasn't just like they were there sitting on the floor dinking around and someone came in and said, hey, you didn't make a covenant like your dad did. Come fight. You know? <laughs> and like They had been involved. They had been active. They had been doing things. They just hadn't gone to fight yet. And then in 21, they were men of truth and soberness for they had been taught to keep the commandments of God and to walk uprightly before him. I think that even though these parents um, had made a commitment not to fight, I think they probably set the example also for their sons, saying, we, we're not involved in the combat of all of this. We made a covenant with God that we would never do that again. We've done enough of that in our lives to know that that's going to lead us down a bad path. But here's what we can do. We can contribute in the following ways, and you will be involved in doing this. And this is why, because... Ultimately, every contribution that everyone makes is to build the kingdom of God, you know, and when you're teaching those kids, this is your role, this is your responsibility, you need to carry that out. Then when a greater responsibility or even a different responsibility comes up later, it's not going to be a huge shock, you know, it's not going to be like, wait, you want me to do what, you know, yeah. it's going to be like, okay, yeah, it, we're there. It's interesting to think it takes some parents who've made some major mistakes. <laughs> you know, it doesn't take perfect parents. It takes parents who understand 
what it was like to be bloodthirsty, to be idolatrous, to be, um, you know, not keeping the commandments, and then receive the gospel and be able to be appreciate it so much that they were able to, hey, how do I teach my kids the right way? I don't know. I just think they must have had really good parents that were really good at teaching them the good and the bad so they could understand why the gospel is important, why it's important to be valiant, why it's important to be obedient. You know what I mean? Um, and I think sometimes we think to ourselves, oh, I'm not a perfect parent. I've made mistakes and stuff. Well, it's like, well, take the example of the Antonifi Lehites. Use those mistakes to your benefit, to to be able to teach. Now you can teach youth or teach kids what it really is like, what it's what that moment is to to re the realization that you're in a path that only brings temporary happiness. It doesn't bring everlasting happiness. What does it take to change? That's probably why Alma was such a good teacher as well. You know, he went from being one of the vilest of sinners to feeling the whole redemption power of the atonement and being able to tell people, hey, guys, this isn't going to work. This doesn't lead to happiness. You have to change your ways. And I'm not saying that that's the only way to be a great teacher, you know, but that was, there's many opportunities for people who've made mistakes to say, that's it, I'm done. There's no redemption. There's no coming back. And Satan will make you feel like you can never be clean. You can never be forgiven. You've gone too far, you, you know. And that's the opposite of what all the general authorities, the scriptures, and what Christ tells us is he descended below everything. So he can take whatever, wherever bad experiences you have and use them to help you and use it to help others. I see a lot of people who go through really difficult things. And sometimes it makes very little sense why they're the ones going through that difficult thing. But I notice that most of these people, when they come out from uh, out of the, you know, from this bad experience, they now have a way where they can help other people that go through those bad experiences. And sometimes it may not be for you; it may be for you to be able to help others. I think that probably more than half the time, there a lot of the reasons we have trials and challenges um, is not only for our benefit, but also so that we can like you said, have the opportunity to help others through those same trials and challenges when they come up in their lives. We learn a lot from everything we go through, but we also become instrumental in helping other people overcome those trials and challenges when we can say, hey, I've been there. I know what that's like. And this is what I did, and it either worked or this is what I did, and it did not work. Here's you, Maybe you ought to avoid trying to do this because it, it didn't work for me. It made things worse. Whatever it may be, like you have the, the opportunity to be a, a tool for our Heavenly Father to help other people around you. I think as far as these, these young men go, it keeps bringing to mind some of the changes that have happened in the church recently with the youth and really pushing leadership towards the youth and pushing opportunities for service and uh, self-determination of what activities and what the lessons are and all that towards them. Because it's like, it's saying, 
for so long we've kind of been like, let us teach you how this goes. And there's definitely some of that, but at the same time, the church has kind of encouraged the youth to take a more leadership role. And this is, I don't know, 2,000 years ago, and he's basically doing the same thing. He's saying, these young men are capable of doing this. We don't know necessarily what their ages were. They're pretty young, but we don't have to wait for seasoned veterans to to be able to do the things that they did. Um, and I think that that is true today, not necessarily in combat. We're not in that kind of war necessarily, but when you look at the young men around us and young women, they're a lot more capable than I think we give them credit for. And they're a lot more, they pay attention, even if, even when they may seem like they don't, uh, they do pay attention to what their parents say. They do pay attention to what leaders say. And, uh, they have the opportunity, I think, now more than ever to teach us and to lead us. We always talk about how, I mean, I've always heard it from when I was a kid. They were saying, oh, your generation was reserved for this time. And then they say that about the our kids, you know, that they're reserved for this time. And if that's true, then, then we ought to give them the opportunity to shine. Yeah. We ought not say, well, how we did it was, well, that was how you did it. These young men and young women are living in a different world. And we got to give them the opportunity to, um, to, to really be leaders and show how they're going to um, take the gospel and, and lead the church into the future. You know, I think it, it's a good example well, from the scriptures here. Well, yeah, I mean, these guys, they're, they're young. They're, they haven't been to war before. And there's only 2,000 of them against, and we're going to read in some battles here, where they weren't supposed to win. No. It wasn't supposed to go their way. It didn't make logical sense, but it did work out. And that's what I think sometimes the Lord, when he says something like, hey, through his prophet, he'll say, hey, just go bathe in the Jordan River seven times. That doesn't make sense. There's mm -hmm. greater rivers than this in Macedonia. Why would I? Come on. You're not even going to come out. You send your servant. You know, we tend to look at these stories and think you know, it, it makes sense looking at them, but we don't, we forget to look at in our lives the things that has been asked of us. Uh, something like, uh, you know, read your scriptures every day, say your prayers. Oh, yeah, but you don't understand. I have a really big problem at work. Yeah, yeah. But take time to go on a walk and maybe think about it. Pray to the Lord. No, no, but you don't understand. My problem has to do with this IRA and this 401k thing and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and you're like, huh? okay, well, who are you going to be? I think this next part is interesting, this next chapter with Amaron. He's the, the brother of Amalekai. Yeah. Amalekai. And then... Uh, at the beginning, it kind of tells us in chapter 54 that he wants to, he sends a message to Moroni saying, I want to exchange prisoners. And then Moroni is very happy about this, but then he kind of counter offers and says, you have women and children with you, not just soldiers. I'll trade you one prisoner for the man, his wife and his family. And then he kind of goes off on him, you know, in verse four, five, six. When he tells them in verse 6, let me tell you something about the justice of God and how his mighty axe hangs over you. 
and how you you know in seven the awful hell, hell that awaits to receive such murderers as thou and thy brother have been <laughs> and then he he keeps going and then in 11 he says behold i suppose it supposes me that i that i talk to you concerning these things in vain or it supposes me that thou art a child of hell therefore i will close my epistle by telling you that i will not exchange prisoners save it be on conditions that ye will deliver up a man and his wife and his children for one prisoner. If this be the case, that ye will do it, I will exchange. And behold, if ye do, do not do this, I will come against you with my armies. Yea, I will arm my women and my children, and I will come against you, and I will follow you even into your own land, which is the land of our first inheritance. Yea, and it shall be blood for blood, yea, life for life, and I will give you battle even until you are destroyed from off the face of the earth. <laughs> and behold, I am in mine anger and also my people, and ye have sought to murder us. So you get the sense that they've had enough. Yeah, They are just upset. And he's just calling him out. And he sends the epistle, and then Amaron, he writes back and says, well, I'm angry with you. I am... <laughs> And I'm brother this, and you've murdered my brother, and we have the right. 17, your fathers did wrong my brethren, insomuch that they did rob them of the right of government. So they, they're kind of doing the old Laman and Lemuel argument, you know. Um, and, and if you will lay down your arms and subject yourself to being governed by us, you know, yada, 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 he keeps going. But then... In 20, nevertheless, I will grant you prisoner exchange according to your request. Mm -hmm. So he's, you know, puts off this, but, you know, he says, because I would rather have food for my bread. I don't know. I think Moroni scared him a little bit. I think he was realizing, uh, yeah, let's just exchange prisoners, get this thing over with. But he's trying to save face. Yeah. And uh, at the end, verse 23 and 24, I find the most interesting. Um. I am Amaron, the descendant of Sorum, whom your fathers pressed and brought out of Jerusalem. You know, that's a lie right there. Sorum was given a choice by Nephi, and he was more than happy to join them. And he's making it sound as if our forefathers, my forefathers, Sorum, you guys forced them to come out here and, and you wronged them. And then in 24, behold, I am a bold Lamanite. Behold, this war hath been waged to avenge their wrongs mm -hmm. and, to and to obtain their rights of government. So first of all, Amaron was a Nephite. You know, he's taken up the cause of this other group because he wants to rule them. He wants to have control over them. Him and his brother Amalekiah, they, they used to be Nephites. And in the it's this it's this weird theme in the Book of Mormon. Well, it's not weird, it's just this theme, and it is weird, I find it weird to me, that the Lamanites hold these grudges from the beginning of the story with Nephi, Laman, and Lemuel, that they were wrong, that they were robbed of their inheritance, so they were robbed of the land of their inheritance. Or, or they took the sword of Laban, or they took the plates, or the the right of government, and it's and it's not like they don't have their own people to govern, right? And it's not like Amalekiah wasn't 
super sneaky and became somehow king of the Lamanites in, in a few chapters back. So it's this lust for power and lust to 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 obtain riches and power and dominion over others hidden under this guise that we've been wronged. We're trying to we're trying to write something, you know. You you have offended us. You have tricked us. You have taken advantage of us. When when it's not right, you know, it's not correct. I, I find that really interesting because I don't know. I don't, I'm not trying to draw too many parallels to a, our day, but there have been many wars fought in the history of humanity over an ancestor did something to that, and then our great great grandkids are going to go undo that wrong, right? It's just interesting. Throughout the this whole section of chapter 53 through 63, there's a couple of callbacks to the beginning of the Book of Mormon. And this is one of them when he says, I'm a descendant of Zoram. He brings that up kind of out of nowhere because Moroni wasn't talking about all that. Amaron brings that up as kind of like a justification for his actions. I'm a descendant of Zoram, who your father's pressed and brought out of Jerusalem. Almost like... I was a Nephite, I am a Nephite by birth, but the reason why I identify with these people for being somehow cheated out of things is because just like Zoram was also cheated out of things. And it's like, no, you look at Zoram sided with Nephi every time. And even when they split from the Lamanites, his people went with the Nephites. And, and, and so, Nephi blessed Zoram. Yeah. Like I said, you have been a true friend of my son. And yeah. all his blessings are the same as your blessings and your posterity, you know. But he's trying to make it seem like I'm one of them because I was wronged too. And it's like, mm. and then later on, which we'll get to later on, they, uh, Moroni actually goes and tries when they're going to set the prisoners free, they go to find a descendant of Laman. Yeah. Which I thought was really weird. I'm like, what difference? And his does name make? was Layman. That yeah. Was the interesting part. <laughs> Do we have any descendants of Layman? And they're like, I don't know. Hey, Layman, <laughs> are you? A... <laughs> but it's just kind of interesting that you know we're we're talking 500 years later, and we're still having these callbacks to the very beginning, in order to justify actions in the present, and oftentimes it's kind of a stretch. Either it's a misunderstanding or it's a a purposeful misguidance of, of a people to tell them it's not really this way. We we Zoramites are actually cheated too, and it's like, no. Well, it's hard it's hard to understand what would motivate I, him to do that. When the there's many examples so far that we've read, especially King Limhai mm -hmm. and his people when they we're trying to get back to Jerusalem. I mean, Sarahemla. They're they're in bondage, and bondage is a form of slavery, you know, servitude. And in these scenarios in the Book of Mormon, it it's always telling us if you keep the commandments, you'll prosper in the land. If you do not keep the commandments, you'll come under bondage, and you won't prosper. And the bondage can be. You know, it could be death, it could be uh, catastrophes, it can be uh, scourged by your enemies. You know, there's various forms this take. 
But ultimately what is happening, what I see happening is the Lamanites judge the Nephites a certain way because of these wrongs and they're being, um, we've always dealt with uh, bigotries and prejudice from one group of people to another. Sometimes those are based on physical characteristics. Sometimes they're based on cultural characteristics or religious beliefs. And sometimes they're based on just family feuds. And, and that's kind of what we have here. At some point, we understand that over the years, the Nephites and the Lamanites, they begin to look differently and act differently. And so the ability to be more prejudiced and judgmental becomes easier because now we can attach to these superficial things. But the underlying theme is we don't like you. We think you've wronged us. And because of what I've been told or I've been taught how you are, I will judge you that way. And therefore I hate you and we should fight type of thing, which is very similar to the way we live right now in our world. For the most part, almost everyone agrees in our society that uh, judging someone because of their physical appearance or characteristics is wrong. We have commercials and things about that. But then we take other things, maybe cultural characteristics, maybe beliefs, and we're okay attacking each other for those things and saying, oh, I'm an atheist, I'm on the side of science. You know, you'll say something like that. I've heard comments like that. And it's like, what? You know, we, we make these statements that are already divisive and only include our group, but, but segregate others and treat others in a very biased, judgmental, ignorant way. And we do that, we're we doing that for masks, we're doing that for this, we're doing that for schooling, for religious beliefs. And it's very similar to this kind of framework where, I don't know, I, I just, it's like reading these chapters right now, it's like, that's exactly <laughs> kind of what we're going through. Yeah, in a lot of ways. So then, even though Emron says, yeah, fine, we'll do the exchange, Moroni refuses to exchange prisoners in chapter 55. Um, and it actually made him more mad, the stuff that he'd said, because he says he knew that Amaron had a perfect knowledge of his fraud. Yet he knew that Amaron knew that it was not a just cause that had caused him to wage a war against the people of Nephi. He's basically saying, this is, your answer is so much a lie that you're justifying this, that he, he got, he was like, forget it. I'm not exchanging it's any prisoners. It's almost like you fear he's so far gone that I can't even trust this deal we're going to make, you know? Yep. like. <laughs> and he's like, I know the place where the Lamanites do guard my people, whom they have taken prisoners, and as Emeron would not grant unto me mine epistle, behold, I will give unto him according to my words. Yea, I will seek death among them until they shall sue for peace. So he's like, I told him what I was going to do. He came back with this bogus response. And like you said, there's no reasoning with this at this point. You know, we can go back and forth and try and negotiate, but he's just going to say that they've been wronged and that they're justified. And um, I got to take matters into my own hands here. 
And that's when they go out and they find Layman, the descendant of Layman. Send him in as a as a spy, kind of, with Luke a group Grub. of guys. Yeah. DoorDash. <laughs> it's a DoorDash, your grub hub <laughs> of wine. <laughs> but it's funny because he doesn't go in and be like, hey, here's some wine, guys. He goes in with the wine and they actually ask him for it. And um he said, Well, let's let's wait till we go to the against the Nephites in battle. And then they wanted even more and they drank a bunch. So I don't know what the plan originally was. If they were like, just take this in there and then start popping corks when we show up to fight them. And so they're fighting drunk. If that was the plan, because he's kind of like, No, I don't want you to drink this right now, you know? Or if it was Tell them no, and they'll want it more, and then they can drink it all, and we can sneak out, or or what exactly it was. But in any case, it works because they get so drunk that they pass out, and then they throw weapons over the wall to all the prisoners. And uh, on the outside, they surround the Lamanites as well. So they, by the time they wake up and they're sober again, they're they they're completely surrounded inside and outside with people yeah. with weapons. I like in verse um, 19, well, 18 and 19, where it says, Behold, they were drunk, and the Nephites could have slain them. Yeah. But behold, this was not the desire of Moroni. He did not delight in murder or bloodshed, but he delighted in saving his people from destruction. For this cause, he might not bring, bring up upon him injustice. He would not fall upon the Lamanites in the street. You know, I just think, Moroni had such sense of honor. He knew that he could accomplish what he needed and he would be doubling his prisoners because he's about to take on more prisoners and free his people and didn't have to slay them. And that's very different than I think how Amaron would do things, you know. I think also he did this because he knew about the Lamanites' tendency to victimize themselves as being, we got tricked or whatever. And he knew that if he went in and got them all drunk and then killed them, there'd be a greater likelihood that they would look at that as Nephite treachery, you know? Instead, he's like, look, let's get them drunk. They go in, they willingly consume this alcohol. They get completely drunk. And then we're not going to kill them. We're just going to surround them and take them prisoner. That way, if anyone ever looks back on this and is like this was wrong they can be like look we didn't make them drink the wine they drove the wine you know they drank it themselves he i think he was just like that would be a uh taking advantage of a situation that would not have been fair you know this was very fair it was like look we brought wine you happen to drink it that's your decision i think it's interesting too <laughs> uh <laughs> In verse um, 29, as many times did the Lamanites attempt to encircle them, so trying to use their own tactics against them. <laughs> but in their, these attempts, they did lose many prisoners, and 30. And many times did they attempt to administer their wine to the Nephites, yeah. that they might destroy them with poison or with drunkenness. And this is a part that's nice. It's, but behold, the Nephites were not slow to remember the Lord their God. In their time of affliction, they could not be taken in their snares, yea, and they would not partake of their wine, save they had first given it to a Lamanite prisoner. 
And they were thus cautious that no poison would be administered among them. For if their wine would poison a Lamanite, it would also poison a Nephite. <laughs> and thus they did <laughs> try all their liquors. It almost feels like because they remember the Lord, they were able to slow down, think things through, and use prudence and be prudent and use wisdom and, and not fall for these snares. Where I think that the Lamanites are very quick to uh, fall for these snares, fall for these same traps. Well, it seems and, they're a lot more emotionally motivated. Not not so much thinking things through, but just kind of like, hey, there's wine. All right. You know, party. Instead of saying, should I be doing that right now? I'm watching over the prisoners. You know, <laughs> like, it well, was just, you take, I don't know. You take someone that has a bad temper, that's easy to anger, and how long of you being around that person do you realize they're very predictable? Yeah. And they, and they, and then if if you realize those two things, then the third one is you can easily manipulate them. And that's kind of the world we live in, where someone can throw a post out there that's very inflammatory, and you know you're going to get these people that are going to support it and push their agenda, and you're going to get these people that are going to be offended and try to defend it and throw throw mud back at the other group, right? Yep. And it's so predictable. And what people don't realize is you become so predictable, you're falling for these snares. You're becoming manipulated. I don't know. I just feel like if you try your best to put off the natural man, to listen to the enticings of the spirit, the spirit will give you revelation. And revelation is the precise actions you need to take for this specific situation that will help you be aligned with the Lord. And those actions are going to change from time to time based on situations, based on motivations, based on who's involved, based on the timing of the Lord and your own preparation and worthiness and all those things, right? But it will make it so you, so today the answer can be A, but tomorrow the answer is B. And what the natural man does is the natural man is, no, every day the answer is A. Every day. You push me, I'm going to push you back. Yep. You steal from me, I'm going to try to take advantage of you. You know, the same thing, and you become so predictable, and you think you're in control, but in reality, you are being manipulated. And then you get people that say those comments, oh, man, man, that guy made me so angry. It's like, so what? You're saying that that situation or that event controls all your emotions and actions and therefore you have no agency it's i don't know i don't know i just see the lamanites kind of like that and it's kind of funny i I like their logic here (laughs) because if it would poison a lamanite it would poison the nephite and not only that but that they try to do the same thing back to the nephites (laughs) kind of like okay we got to get our people back what do we do what if we did the same thing they did to us? <laughs> you know? What if we make them drink wine and then surround them? And they're like, yeah. Then they go and they try it. <laughs> it doesn't work. I don't well, know how many kind of like those, those colonial battles, you know, the like where you get massive people just standing, uh, you know, 30 feet from each other, aiming their muskets. 
and everybody just fires. Yeah. And it's like, so who wins? Is it just luck <laughs> or whoever has the most people left standing? You know, we have Helaman and Antipas. And then we have Moroni and like Lehi and, and, um, so it almost seems like there's like two battlefronts. Yeah. And they are, they begin to send epistles to each other to let each other know what's happening on the other side. And I don't know, it just, it'd be really cool to know where these battles took place. Like, you know, as we look at North, South, Central, South America, you know, that whole area, and kind of get an idea. It'd, it'd be interesting to see the time frames and the distances. And because you're talking, from some of the numbers here, you're talking thousands of people fighting. And in order to raise, you know, an army of like a hundred soldiers, you probably need like 600 civilians, you know, family, kids, farmers, you know, I'm making those numbers up, right? But it just seems like, and to be able to send them supplies, and we're going to get into that part where, the the battles start raging on. There's cities being taken and fortified and lost and retaken. And there's this desire for troops and to get, can you send us help? Can you send us help to this side of, and I would, you know, if, if there was like a movie that would show the background, like, hey, we're in this town. Who's training the troops? Mm-hmm. Who's like, how do you package these supplies? What are you sending? Sugar cane and coconuts? And, <laughs> I don't know, dried pork? I, I don't know, you know? It'd be interesting yeah. to know that kind of thing. Well, Not only me. that, but just in chapter 56, it says verse 1 was about 62 BC, verses 2 through 19, 66 BC, and verses 20 through 57, 65, and 64 BC. So we're talking years are going by. We're reading it one chapter about movements here, movements there, and running back and forth, and so and so, and chasing so and so into a trap, and but potentially four years in one chapter. That's substantial, you know. That's a long time that's gone by um, in all of this, and you think the American Civil War lasted five years essentially, yeah. and. It's affected everything after that, you know, in many ways. Um, imagine wars that are like this that are going on for years and years and years and then a little bit of calm and then more war and then a little bit of calm. Like, I, I wonder if there wasn't like a warrior class of people who that's their role, almost like Spartans, you know, that we are the warrior class and maybe we're not called on to fight all the time, but there is... Yeah. Next there war, still we're needs there. to be farmers. Yeah. You know, they, they still need to have food and supplies and clothing and weapons. Somebody's got to be making weapons. Or... <laughs> um, the next kind of section in the lesson is we can choose to think the best of others and not be offended. And this is um, in reference to, to Helaman kind of getting frustrated with the government about not sending additional support he felt very wronged he felt like he was being kind of left out on an island out there and his, is it his what or is that moroni and 
the horn. Or I'm no, that's before. Okay, never mind. You're right. Yeah, I think he'll. Um, well, it's a kind of a similar situation, you know, between Moroni and Pahoran because he gets mad at Pahoran by saying, "Where's our support? Where's our additional this and that?" And Pahoran then writes back to him, kind of like, "Look, dude, here's what's going on. <laughs> like, before you get mad, uh, we're dealing with our own situations over here, and they kind of make amends at that point, kind of like, okay, well, we'll send but, you support." But also, Moroni was—he was—he wasn't a complete uh, loose cannon either. No, he said, "Hey, we need help, and I hope there's a good reason why you're not sending us help." Yeah, but. If the reason is you're being lackadaisical and you forget about us out here, then yeah, I'm going to come in there. I'm going to take my army back and we're going to make sure that you understand that that this is important, right? So it's it's almost, I mean, I, he was very direct and he's very, but he wasn't, there was also within him a, a desire to know what's really going on. And I think that's why he was, as soon as Pahoran said, oh, I'm so happy you called me back what you don't understand. And I know you're very angry and you kind of censored me a little bit, but but we have these kingmen, they have rised up, they're trying to take back the government and I don't know what to do about it. And then, <laughs> and then Moroni's like, oh, I'm so happy that your heart's still true. I hate to do this. We're going to pause over here. I'm going to come back. We're going to help you. We're going to clean house and because we got to, you know, fix things. And then I think sometimes we forget that Moroni left the door open in his conversation that there could be another possibility. Yeah, and Pahorn, to his credit, instead of saying, instead of getting really mad and being like, you know what, you don't understand, you're just out there fighting a war, it's clear-cut what your goals are, but back here, we're up against everything. Instead of getting offended at Moroni's questions, he you know, says, I'm not angry, I rejoice in the greatness of your heart. Basically saying, look, I, I get where you're coming from, I do not seek for power, save only to retain my judgment seat, that I may preserve the rights and liberty of my people. My soul standeth fast in the liberty in which God hath made us free. He's saying, look, I'm still on your side. I'm not mad at you for being mad at me. But you really need to know that, what's, that there's, a, there's a serious situation happening here, and that's why I haven't been able to support you. Because he could have escalated things, right? Moroni writes to him saying, what the heck, man? He could have escalated things and said, no, you know what? You take care of yourself. We got our own problems. But instead, he started to calm things down by saying, we're on the same page. I'm still on your side. I'm just really pushed to my limits right now. And that's when I think Moroni was able to recognize, yeah, this is not a good situation. He needs help. There's a quote here from David A. Bednar about being offended and how to avoid taking offense. Um, he says, recognize that being offended is a choice. To believe that someone or something can make us feel offended, angry, hurt, or bitter diminishes our moral agency and transforms us into objects to be acted upon. As agents, however, you and I have the power to act and to choose how we will respond to offensive or hurtful situation. Two, look to the Savior. The Savior is the greatest example of how we should respond to potentially offensive events or situations. Three, be understanding of others' weaknesses. One of the 
greatest indicators of our own spiritual maturity is revealed in how we respond to the weaknesses, the inexperience, and the potentially offensive actions of others. And lastly, communicate directly. If a person says or does something that we consider offensive, our first obligation is to refuse to take offense and then communicate privately, honestly, and directly with that individual. Such an approach invites inspiration from the Holy Ghost and permits misperceptions to be clarified and true intent to be understood. The biggest part of it is, if someone does something to offend you, um, you, assume the best, right? Assume that they are not malicious in their intent. Assume that it's a misunderstanding. If you start from there, you're probably on good footing. If you find that this person did actually mean to offend you and is actually just kind of rude and then then you kind of have to say, okay, um, what's going to make this better, right? I He says here, acknowledge the weaknesses, inexperience of potentially offensive actions of others. Maybe they don't know that that's, effect, that that's offensive or maybe they just really want to be offensive to you. Um, yeah. That's a different story. But if you start out from a position of, I'm sure they didn't mean this, or I'm sure that they, this is just a misunderstanding, or I'm reading it wrong, or something like that, you're likely to avoid most problems. And then, yeah, seek clarification. Hey, this kind of came across strong, you know? <laughs> uh, did you mean to say it like this, or, or what exactly are you well, trying to say? And they may be like they are like Amaron. And yeah. Moroni has to say, it supposes me that thou art a child of hell. <laughs> <laughs> like, there, no, there are people who are just, they're trollers. They're yeah. just out to get a reaction or they're out to hurt people because they didn't get funny or it makes them feel better or they're bullies, right? Yeah. And like Amaron, they're, if they're that kind of person who, you know, you cannot reason with them. You won't be able to strike up a deal, you know? And that's what Captain Moroni had to do with Amaron. Look how he interacted with Amaron, and look how he interacts with Pahoran. With Pahoran, he's willing to, hey, okay, misunderstanding. Let's get back on the right track. Let's let's continue to help our people. Let's fulfill our purpose, right? And with Amaron's like, you know, I began talking to you, and every time it continued to escalate to the point where I realized I can't have a conversation with you. We're passwords. We're going to have to figure out our my my own way of getting my prisoners back, right? Um, and there, there are people like that. There are people that they will not like you, and no matter what you do. The problem is when you try to chase the approval of people that you shouldn't, you know, that can be a problem because you'll end up being manipulated or you end up being subservient to these people or you end up making a fool of yourself or it's going to end up hurting even worse because they're going to throw you under the bus again. Yep. And the approval of the people that you should be seeking approval is the approval of people you have made covenants with, meaning your spouse, meaning your heavenly father, meaning your kids, you know, and to the extent your kids... You don't. You also need to be a good parent. You can't just try to get them to like you in every scenario. <laughs> you know what I mean. But um, what I've noticed oftentimes is that one person is 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 kind of rude, and the other person 
wants to solicit understanding or try to figure out why, but they don't do what Elder Benner says, where Elder Benner says, you go talk to them privately mm -hmm. and ask them what's going on. What they'll do is they'll do a generic post, a mm. group chat, something that comes across passive aggressive. Be like, hey, you know, like, for example, uh, Daniel, you, you lend me, I lend you money, you know, $10, right? And I am embarrassed to be direct and ask you, dude, when are you going to give me my money back? So in turn, I make a post on Facebook and I say, you know, it'd be nice if people didn't take advantage of you, even if, even if it's small amount of money, people should just be responsible enough to pay it back. <laughs> and then you'll get a whole crowd of people. Oh, I agree with you 100%. I can't believe people. I hate people like that. And you just are making this toxic ball of poison. Meanwhile, you may not even check Facebook. Or you do <laughs> check Facebook and you're like, what the heck? Is he talking about me? Yeah. What kind of a jerk. And then you start your own thing. And then, and then you know, nothing. And that's what one of the things that we've gotten to. We've diluted our ability to have meaningful conversations with people by making these broad open social media blasts or memes or, or no, I don't know, memes are funny sometimes, but you know, <laughs> you, these, these things, and we do that for causes too. There's a cause like, hey, we don't want any more guinea pigs uh, slaughtered at restaurants. And instead of talking to restaurants, talking to people who actually can do things, you'll just make a post, get people riled up, and nothing ever happens. And when you end up, it's creating more offense. The offense breeds more offense and offense. And, and before you know it, you're divided. You're not liking. Everybody's picking sides. You're getting your arms ready. You're ready to battle. And it's like all started because of an offense. This whole book is an offense. Some <laughs> brothers did not get along. And to Nephi's credit, he forgave his brothers many times. And even when they tied him up, it says, and he frankly forgave them and then implored them, pray to the Lord, ask for forgiveness, change your ways. So it's not always, you won't always be able to change the entire outcome. Some people will continue to be offended, but you don't have to let it continue to poison you and drag you down. And you definitely don't have to continue adding to the toxic venom out there yeah. and, 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 and perpetuating even more offense. It's one of those things where you have to keep in mind what what's the actual objective of all of this. When you start getting offended, like like uh, like Elder Bednar says, you're relinquishing your agency, and like you mentioned earlier, also you're relinquishing that agency. You're letting someone else control you, control your emotions and thoughts. And people will do all kinds of things and say all kinds of things that they either mean or don't mean in the moment. Um, but really what it comes down to is, what's the bigger picture? What would Jesus do? We say that kind of thing all the time. What would Christ do? We'll live a Christ-like life. He, people did some of the meanest, harshest, cruelest things to him. You know? And every prophet in the scriptures, I mean, people getting stoned, kicked out of cities, you know? And what what would they do? Well, they would say, I'm doing this for God. The bigger picture is in my mind, you know? 
I'm doing this for everyone. I'm doing this for my brethren. You look at even Helaman in in chapter 62. Helaman goes to fight. He takes the stripling warriors. He's their captain. He takes them around and he fights wars. But then in chapter 62, he comes back and in verse 45, Helaman and his brethren went forth and did declare the word of God with much power unto the convincing of many people of their wickedness, which did cause them to repent of their sins and to be baptized unto the Lord their God. And it came to pass that they did establish again the church of God throughout the land. Yea, and regulations were made concerning the law, and their judges and their chief judges were chosen. And the people of Nephi began to prosper again in the land, and began to multiply and to wax exceedingly strong again in the land, and they began to grow exceedingly rich. What was the point of all that fighting? What was the point of all of that? It was to be able to reestablish the church, to be able to reestablish the gospel again. That's that's the bigger picture they have in mind. They probably could have wiped out the Lamanites at some point in all of this. Just wiped them out. They win a war, they could have just kept going and killed them all. But that wasn't the point. The point was, okay, we got to stop all this fighting. We got to get to a point where we can reach peace so that we can reestablish the gospel again. Yeah. As you mentioned that in verse 61... When Perhoran writes back to Moroni and lets him know, hey, there's this insurgency, these king men have risen up. Why don't you come help me? Because I could use some military help, right? But in chapter 14, it says, Therefore, my beloved brother Moroni, let us resist evil. Whatsoever evil we cannot resist with our words, yea, such as rebellions and dissension, let us resist them with our swords, that we may retain our freedom that we may rejoice in the great privilege of our church and in the cause of our Redeemer and our God. And yeah. then in 15, he says, hey, come to me quickly. Leave Lehi and Teancum in charge. They kind of know what they're doing, and they have the Spirit with them. But then at the end of that verse in 15, it, it's interesting where he says, according to the Spirit of God, which is also the Spirit of freedom, which is in the... And I thought that was really interesting when he said that because the spirit of God is the spirit of freedom. And you look at our Heavenly Father, he gives us all agency to do good or bad. And we often argue about why does God let bad things happen? You know, and it's a difficult topic to think about, especially when you are the one affected by a very bad thing that was outside of your control or someone else's agency that they they abused and hurt you and hurt someone you love with, right? But freedom is the opportunity for you to use your agency to choose good or to choose evil. And if you choose evil, there are bad consequences. And if you choose good, there are good consequences but bad things may still happen to you. Like the sun, the 2,000 scripting warriors. They, won, they win some miraculous battles. And it's miraculous because none of them died. But they were injured. Yeah. Suffer, you know. And it's kind of like with our, with our Savior. He can turn all of our misfortunes and sufferings and scars He will eventually heal everything that's happened to us. There will become, there will be a time 
when all the wrongs will be righted. And it's because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, that can give us comfort now when our wrong is not yet righted, but we can hope. And there's going to be some chapters later in, in this Book of Mormon where they're going to talk about hope. That you need to have hope. You need to continue to have charity and, and hope for even a better place after this life where things will be corrected. And that, that thought alone can be comforting and can help us move on. But I think about these offenses and these wars and things. And for us to be disciples of Jesus Christ, to say to ourselves, we are following Jesus Christ in his teachings and we want to be like him. One of his greatest attributes and is his ability to forgive. He went through the atonement so he could know us, so he could forgive us. He subjected himself to something terrible that he didn't have to go through. He did not deserve it. But he did it so he could understand us and forgive us and heal us. Because he loves us. We may at times be subjected to terrible things. So we too can learn how to forgive. Even when we didn't deserve it. How is that not understood as we say we're going to follow Jesus Christ? The one individual, we're going to follow and emulate him and follow his footsteps. The one individual who went through things that were totally not fair. Not his fault and he didn't deserve. How can we think that we would go through anything different? And when we go through those experiences, shouldn't we understand? Because sometimes we get upset. We, we think this isn't fair, Heavenly Father. This isn't, you know, who are we telling that this isn't fair to? You know, <laughs> um, we better be careful. You know, who, who we better remember who we're talking to, you know. And he's not leaving us. He was totally alone at some point. He will never leave us as long as we seek him out and we make covenants and we try to remain true to them. He will help us, you know. And at the same time, think about about Joseph Smith praying and saying, everything is messed up right now. We're all suffering. I don't know how we're going to do this. And he doesn't say, you want to know about unfair? Let me tell you about unfair, Joseph. You know, <laughs> instead he says, this will be but a moment. You're going to be okay. And I think that that's the biggest message for us from him is not only did I go through all of that unfairness for you, but if you are righteous and you use the atonement for your benefit, you can overcome anything. And it doesn't matter how bad or how offended or how many people turn their back on you. Um, the Lord will never do that. Yeah. He'll always say, look, follow the commandments, do what you're supposed to do, and all of these things will be but a, a small moment. And it may feel like it's the end of the world, but believe me, I've seen the end of the world, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's not, and you're going to be okay. I think a lot of that right now, people, a lot of the anger and frustration that's out there 
is because of the trials that we're all going through that we're not used to going through. Um, setbacks in, in schools and setbacks in normal life because of this pandemic, in addition to the fact that, you know, there's elections going on and there's global politics are kind of on their head and all of that. Like there's just so much tumultuous things, so many tumultuous things going on that it's causing discomfort and it's causing frustration and that turns into anger. And then someone says something you don't agree with and you're, you're so full of just rancor about things that you lash out and then they lash back at you. And it's like, in the big picture, this is but a small moment. We're going to overcome all of this. And it is the last days. And things will kind of get more and more crazy. But where do we put our attention? What are we fighting all of this for? Right? Take the example of Helaman. He fought that entire war, took those young men out there, and, and they were all wounded, and no one died, and they remained faithful. And in the end, he died he passed away after having reestablished the church in the land, after preaching, converting, and, and reestablishing the church again. That's the point, right? That's the point of all of this. Remembering faith and remembering the purpose of this life isn't just to be in a battle and win social points and all that. That's all meaningless. What matters is where does your, where does your spiritual allegiance lie? And checking yourself every so often to say, am I on the right track? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And if not, now's the time to change that. And, you know, keep my commandments, you shall prosper in the land. I think that promise extends to all of us. Keep your command, the commandments and you'll prosper as well. Not only in temporal ways, but also you may not feel as thrown around in the wind of, of tumultuous times. You may have a stronger foundation, and I think that that's what everyone needs right now is a little bit more of like a firmness in, in the resolve to be reliant on our Heavenly Father. This topic of forgiveness is very important. Um, as you were talking, I, you know, I thought about the scripture. <clears throat> it's in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 47. And it says, ye have heard that it has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despisefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. And if ye salute your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the publicans so. And I just love the way Christ just cuts right to the center of things. Because he's saying, if you just get along with people that are like you and treat you nice, Aren't you just the same as the people you're criticizing? And and uh, I would add to this, well, not add, but I would just maybe use some modern day bedazzling to say, <laughs> before you post 
arguing with that person, post a comment arguing with that person or trying to defend something that you believe in, have you prayed for them? Have you gotten to know them a little bit? You know, the term social justice warrior is a, is a negative term for someone who continuously fights and argues with people online seeking some sort of justice, right? But let's not, let's be careful that we don't become religious justice warriors out there just hammering people away with, with you know, the method that has been given to us is to minister, not to repost, not to <laughs> reply, you know, not to, you know, make passive aggressive blanketing comments out there. The method that the Lord has asked us to help our neighbors to increase the, the our uh, missionary opportunities is to minister to others, to view them as Christ would view them, to serve them. And I think we forget about that, that serving someone, it, we always look at servants as if they are lesser. And that's when Christ would say, he who is greatest among you, let him be thy servant. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve others. You know, and, and we, we forget that. We think that we're going to win this battle of ideology by just using the same tactics the enemy uses. And that's not what these scriptures teach us in the war chapters. And that's not what the Savior teaches us. We win the battle most of the time by even denying the battle at all, by controlling ourselves, by not giving into the natural man. And when it's time to fight, we do it in the Lord's way. It's, a, it's an interesting thing that before the war chapters, we were given chapters that were about persuasion, were about missionary work that showed and would tell us, you will see that the word had more power over the hearts of man than the sword. You know, Mormon tells us that. And here's the example, you know. There, there is a time for war. There is a time for conflict. But we should be like Captain Moroni, only use the amount of conflict that is needed and nothing more. Be careful we don't become bloodlust and blood hungry and, and out there trying to cancel people or trying to mic drop on people continuously on Facebook or Twitter or wherever, right? As if, as if we're just laying waste to a bunch of people that don't matter and opinions that don't matter or people that are wrong and we forget to look at them and say, these are children of our Heavenly Father as well. These are our brothers and sisters. What have you done to minister to them? And it may be that the best thing you can do is not engage in this method. Go find someone you can engage person to person and talk to them. Because that's how the world really is going to be changed. It's going to be changed one minister, one missionary, one conversion, one person at a time. It's not going to be one magical post with links and weird comments that all of a sudden people are going to break down in their 
in their basement and, and I, I agree that they have you have revolutionized the way they look at life and they now are ready to be converted. Yeah. It's not really going to happen like that. Well, and it's clear that you know the, the Nephites won this round of battles, but it, the peace and prosperity wasn't established in the land again until the church and the gospel were brought back into the equation. The fight is sometimes necessary, but when it comes down to it, what makes ultimate change and what makes a difference is the gospel. You know, you look at all the problems that exist in the world right now, every conflict, every every dispute, and the solution in the long term is the gospel. It's not, like you said, it's not some big long paragraph of supposedly irrefutable facts. It's the gospel, teaching each other tolerance and, and an understanding, and also teaching each other, here are the commandments. This is what's right, and this is what's wrong, you know, and, and helping each other. I think that's really, really wise, what you've said, that we've been told to minister to each other, not to convince each other of the truth, not to persuade in, in, a, in a coercion type way, but to minister Christ didn't go around telling people, you know, do this or else. Um, the only times he ever brought that up was, you know, here are the laws and here are the consequences of those laws. He was kind and loving and patient to people who didn't ex- expect it. Yeah. To the sinners, to the, to, to the Samaritans, right? And there are many examples where it showed that the Samaritans were actually living more of the spirit of the law. And he was very harsh and critical of those who had the law and should have known better. And were supposed to be the teachers and the leaders. And they had perverted things so they could get gain. And those people are us. We have every opportunity (laughs) to know better. And if we're found not knowing better and having done better with all the blessings and opportunities we have, we better get ready for some chastisement that's not going to be pleasant. It is the people that are ignorant, that are out there doing whatever that we perceived as the sinners, that are the ones that will get the most mercy because they don't have the law. They don't have these scriptures. They don't have federal conference. They haven't made covenants. Once you do, then more is expected of you. But sometimes we think, we look at the Pharisees and Sadducees, and and we look at the things Christ said to them about being hypocrites and stuff, and we're like, oh, that's how I need to treat so-and-so. It's like, no, they don't have the law given to them. You do. You need to be extra careful. You know, I I like We are much more likely to be like the Pharisees than anybody else. Because we have the truth and we have the fullness of the gospel accessible to us. And we have we have the greatest likelihood to be prideful about that. Or the greatest likelihood to try and use that as some sort of leverage against others on I'm better than you. Which is exactly what the Pharisees did. So we, we really need to be careful about how we use the light and knowledge we've been given for a, a, in a productive way rather than in a condemning way. Because then we are no greater than even the Pharisees were. At the end, in verse 62, in chapter 41, it says, But chapter behold, because, 
Yeah, chapter 62, verse 41, sorry. But behold, because of the exceedingly great length of the war between the Nephites and the Lamanites, many had become hardened because of the exceedingly great length of the war. And many were softened because of their afflictions, insomuch that they did humble themselves before God, even in the depths of humility. And I really like that because the war affected everyone. Some became bitter and some became humbled. And then it just goes to say in 43, Moroni yields his command to his son, Moronaiha, and he retires at his own house that he may remain, which I think it's a very well-earned retirement. <laughs> and then Pehoran did return to his judgment seat. Helaman did take upon him to go preach the word of God. And 45, I really liked, therefore Helaman and his brethren went forth and they declare the word of God with much power unto the convincing of many people of their wickedness, which did cause them to repent of their sins and to be baptized into the Lord their God. And it came to pass that they did establish again the church of God throughout all the land. Yea, and regulations were made concerning the law, and their judges and their chief judges were chosen. And the Nephites began to prosper again in the land and began to multiply and to wax exceedingly strong again in the land, and began to grow exceedingly rich. And this is the best part. Notwithstanding their riches, or their strength, or their prosperity, they were not lifted up in the pride of their eyes. Neither, neither were they slow to remember the Lord their God, but they did humble themselves exceedingly before him. Yea, and they did remember how great of things the Lord had done for them, that he had delivered them from death, from the bonds, and from prisons, and from all manner of afflictions, and he had delivered them out of the hands of their enemies. You wonder how many of these people were prisoners that were rescued through these missions that the, these guys, how many other stories that weren't included in here of things that happened, right? Yeah. And, it, and it's just nice because Many times we're used to the pride cycle as they prosper, they become rich, they forget the Lord. And, you know, but this is one of those examples where he tells us it wasn't like that. They began to prosper, they began to be rich, and they didn't forget why they're prospering, who brought them here, and who was merciful. And I kind of really like that as a, as the kind of almost the conclusion of the war chapters. But, you know, like 41 says, there were some that these things made them hard and bitter and angry and some whom, you know, don't, I, my advice would be is as we go through hard times and we see the hand of the Lord deliver us through this COVID time, through whatever situation we're in, do not let other people's bad experience or bad vibes or bad attitude ruin your ability to be grateful for what you do have. You can be grateful for your country. You can be grateful for your freedom. You can be grateful for your religion and for your friends and your family. And you can be grateful for the Lord. And if someone right next to you is not, don't let that take away the miracles and, and, and the blessings that you have. Because sometimes we feel like, we all unanimously have to feel like this or else there's something wrong, you know, or it wasn't real. And 
and it is real and it happened to the Nephites and some some were hardened and some were softened but those who who chose to be humbled were able to see the hand of the Lord in all these blessings and have gratitude and prosperity and stuff and that ends chapter 63 right yep it's just um, Helaman gives the records to Shiblon yeah, they kind of pass him down. Then he gives them to Helaman's son, Helaman. I thought it was interesting, the Haggoth guy that built the ships. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a curious guy. I kind guy. of feel like that would be him. I'd be like, okay, we survived that. Can we leave? Can we get he, out of here? Elon Musk. In the day, he's like, we're going to Mars. We're out of here. I built this really big ship. And... Anybody wants to come, we're going to take off and see what we find. Then he comes back, builds more ships, and then they leave again. And then they're never heard from again. Kind of like to know what happened with them. I know that there's some theories that they're the forefathers of the people that populated the South Pacific. I don't know. Could be true. Maybe not. I don't know. But I, I would have gone the other way. I would have gone to like Jamaica or... <laughs> But kind of fascinating, you know, that they would include that in there. He's, say, he's this, called... There's this one guy, he was really curious, and he just took off. And we don't know what happened to him, but... <laughs> Built him an exceedingly large ship. Yeah. It's got to be, you know, the word exceedingly curious and exceedingly large ch- ship. Mormon put it in here. I mean, he... Who knows? Who knows if they had dealings with these people later on? There's another set of scriptures we'll get someday. The Book of Mormon is truly the keystone of our religion, and that a man and woman will get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. And if you then go and do what he would have you do, your power to trust him will grow. And in time, you will be overwhelmed with gratitude to find that he has come to trust you. There is no end to the good we can do, to the influence we can have with others. Let us not dwell on the critical or the negative. Let us pray for strength. Let us pray for capacity and desire to assist others. Let us radiate the light of the gospel at all times and in all places that the spirit of the Redeemer may radiate from us. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come. Follow me.